Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. Today we're going to be talking the Endangered Species Act, and more specifically, who or what is the Rusty Patch Bumblebee? In our spotlight, we'll take a look at Precision Planting's new planter. Ag History Minute, we'll talk about the history of the Endangered Species Act. Cool Beans, that's corny. We'll have some current events, and we'll wrap things up with a Field Good Friday. With me today are Bill Schaumburg. Hey, guys. Todd Schaumburg. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. Here we are on a... It's, it's the week after a heartbreaking, but not entirely unexpected loss. I mean, it was their game to... To lose, they it was in their hands. Missed field goal, some missed interceptions. There, there were opportunities that just weren't uh, were taken advantage. The Packers ended their house money run in the playoffs, which is still good sign for where the team is at, considering where we thought we were at in the beginning of the season. So, remember when we were two and five, we were like, "Hey, let's just go for broke here and just tank, right?" I remember Todd specifically just being done. I was done. So, yes, this was a lot of fun. Still was pretty upset, but the Joe Barry firing just made it all better. Like, then you're like, nope, okay, we're we're kind of looking ahead for the future. You know, especially in business, you got to, what do they say, hire quickly and fire quickly. Hire and slowly. Hire, hire slow. You hire slow, fire, fire quick. quick. Yep. And it felt like with that one we hired quick and fired slow and it was like we knew so and what i think is neat in sports is especially in the playoffs spring seem to bring out all the like yeah. little problems you saw throughout the season so especially in like the growing season too you you have little problems throughout the season and then you'll hit harvest and you like all of that will shed light on all you know why your yield sucked or what happened or this last year we couldn't explain it, why the yields were better than we thought, even though the season was dry. Well, this year in the Packers season, you had, you know, a kicker that basically missed a kick every game, mm -hmm. and that came to roost, and a defense that when you needed them, you know, they seemed to not be able to stop you. And they, and they seemed to make quarterbacks look way better than what they were. So and when you got, like, Giants quarterback who, who just did awesome against us and then is a nobody after that, and I can't even think of his name. That's how big of a nobody he is. DeVito. Yes, thank you. Tommy. Tommy DeVito. You know, and and then we go on to to have Brock Purdy, who didn't look good he at all. That bad. his hand was wet, cold. He, he had to bad. wear a glove, no yeah. glove. He looked really bad. And but the, when they needed him, and he was able to just march down and and score. So yeah, it's quite a. I don't know, Matt, how much you listen, but I know Todd and I listened to our buddy Zabe all the time, and he made a good point the other day that. This Joe Barry thing kind of, like you said, Todd, came to roost. On the game-winning drive that the that the 49ers had, I don't remember how many plays it was, six, eight, whatever it was, ten plays, whatever, they basically had a four-man front on every play except for one they had a five. So, like, you're just like, okay, 49ers, here's ten yards, here's seven yards, here's six yards. Like, they didn't put pressure on Purdy that that last drive at all 
No. And look at what they did the rest of the game. Like, that's how they got ahead was they were giving him fits because people were in his face. And Yeah, he was forced to throw the ball. He threw the ball poorly or was getting contacted when throwing the ball. You're up by four with six minutes to go. You let them burn off. You let them bleed, what, four and a half, five minutes? And then you're you're left with a minute to try to go down the field with a quarterback that's never been there before and then reverted back to let's just Favre chuck it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which he's made those plays, but again. But that one's hard when you have three timeouts a minute. It, and it also, it was a very much so a team loss, which yeah. maybe makes it feel a little better, where you can't fully blame one entity. No. Um, because they all had, like, even special teams had their problems, but they, Keyshawn Nixon had that huge return, then fumbles it, and we get right. it back. So mm-hmm. it was, we had some luck, too. But it was one of those games where it still, it still hurts every time. And these teams that, like, say, well, at least you're there, I agree. At least we are there, but, but man, why, does it make it hurt way more? When that's you why know it hurts because you're, you're like because you're, you're there. there. You have yeah. the opportunity. You just didn't finish. And if you win, you're in the championship game, which then anything could happen, right? I right. Mean, but hopefully, this was the inexperienced part of you know what? If, what is the phrase that uh, you play like you've been there before? Well. They hadn't been there before, and no. now now they've got the experience. Hopefully, the next time, if they can get that far, they and you could see that in the Forty Niners, they've been there before, right? And they they seem to, you know, especially that their coach, our coaches, and their coaches' coaching tree. Right. So right. he kind of seems to have our number that way too. Yeah, and the Forty ers they weren't ready to play. Oh no, no, they, they were rusty they at yeah. first, and they once they knocked that rust off, you could tell yeah. they were. And it's yeah. well losing Debo that yeah. the game yeah. hurt them too. So are we Lions fans now? Well we have a resident Lions fan. Yeah, I'm, so I'm really have, happy for him. Like, I have to support him. Like all bets aside for those people. It's it's probably how we I mean it's how we felt, maybe not you guys, but me such but like in the ni- and people in the older 90s than me, when, like when yeah. he first started to make that like I remember when Mikulski had that big year. 89, it was like, okay, here we go. You know, it's just you start to build. Obviously, Mikowski didn't after that, but they got a team. So, and and they, it's their time. Yeah, good for Jim. I see, Bill, you're sitting in the Honolulu blue chair this morning. So. I am. I am. It's my ode. <laughs> so, all right. You guys ready to get into some really lighthearted topic with the uh, Endangered Species Act here? Yep. I, lighthearted is an understatement of of dwelling through this topic is going to be, yes, very... Uh, I, what we're trying to do, though, is bring it in an interesting way to farmers where they can learn about it that well, it doesn't it, blindside them of what's right, it, what's it, down the road the, there for, is, yeah, for herbicide labels. Some things that are going to impact... The agricultural community in general. I mean, not that it hasn't before. Obviously, the the whole wolf side is probably the best known side in the state. As you know, the endangered species not having wolf hunts for a while, um, on and off the list a little bit the last few years. As we did have a wolf hunt a few years ago, um, you know, losing cattle to that particular species in some parts of the state and um, in other states as well, but. There's a kind of a new twist, I guess, 
to how this is going to affect farming, and that's the rusty patch bumblebee. So, so big picture too, Matt, to start at like the yeah. real big picture. Todd's hands are up. Like way big, up, yeah. Big. Because this <laughs> if we remember back to like the dicamba label for soybeans and some of those other, and when they those labels were vacated and we went from having a product to basically saying you don't you can't you know yeah, immediately no, yeah. you can't use it like and tomorrow, we got like today you can use it tomorrow right, you can't right so EPA has been working on a new system in that there would be these sort of supplemental labels that would be released so we don't have to vacate a product and that'll be released through this bulletin live to through the EPA and because labels were always nice easy reading and well no <laughs> yeah tr- true I, this wah, idea wah. too is going to be it'll be tough because you're right man it's like you read through the label and all of a sudden now I got a whole bunch of supplemental labels that are going to look for a specific location it's going to be more steps and right. more more frustrating and how do you find out and all of a sudden you're going to have something that you don't even know you're spraying off label potentially because of this new supplemental label that came out. So that that's kind of the next step down. And then where it has to do with the Endangered Species Act is there's th- certain things that are being listed or delisted at different times that if they are on that list and they are in your area, then you have to watch out for them. So today we're going to focus on the Rusty Patch Bumblebee because that is what's in Wisconsin and is going to be a potential problem. Yeah, and like you said, it, it the hardest part about this is it is going to be an ever-changing landscape. It's not like, oh, well, we know this species, this chemical, this is what we got to watch out for. It, it It's going to change, and that's the, like you said, the Bulletin's Live 2 is something that we're going to all have to get used to looking at and checking, and um, that was kind of last week we were at a conference that they, they kind of stressed that point of like, trying to get the word out about Bulletin's Live 2, uh, which I, I have to laugh because it's Bulletin's Live and then 2 spelled out, like T-W-O. Not the number. Not the number 2. And it's Bulletin's Live, like there's yes, an exclamation the point. point yep. So it's, there's, so like yes. Re- live with Regis? So yeah. And, and you just basically Google that EPA Bulletin's Live 2 in many different ways and you're going to come up with kind of a site that has a map and then you click around the map to your area that you're going to spray in, and it'll tell you if there is like a supplemental label. So right now, um, at Toyota World Headquarters, there is nothing on the map for a supplemental label. But if you go kind of around sort of Winnebago County, down in that way, and click, and you're going to get um, different kind of different supplemental labels. Here's one that I guess is closer to Fond du Lac County, but it's, uh, dicamba, and then cyanotrinoprol, so like a insecticide that you're going to have to have some different sort of... There's a supplemental label to. You click um, full details, and then you can download like a bulletin that's like, look, you can get it as a PDF bulletin for that area, and it can tell you basically the different, you know, where to go, what to do, how to follow that that sort of supplemental label. Well, and two, well, you can also find the, uh, 
the habitat of certain species in some of these maps. So there's, if, when we look, the particular species we're going to talk about, the rusty patch bumblebee, they have kind of splotches around the map of where those are located. So that can also help give you an indication of whether you need to be thinking about these supplemental labels. And it is not a... Um, easily defined area there it's kind of a splotchy map they're all over the place um seems to be a fair amount in residential and larger city areas but there's also scattered around the the rural areas too so it's it's really there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to the map you can't just say (laughs) oh well if you're in this area particularly. That it's not like a county, like right. sometimes with herbicide, like atrazine restrictions, it's a, it's township a square or a township yeah. or a It, it is because there are some lines that are go by county, but then there's a whole bunch of little circles and random yeah. drawing through the middle that is is very odd. Some of them are even weird of like, some of them are in lakes kind of, and then there's some where the lakes are not, which... I don't know why, you know, like it, it's just odd how they, they set up that way too. That right. Even over water is a little different. The the fuzz confusing part with what these guys are talking about, we got two separate websites we're talking about. The Bulletins Live 2 is kind of more of a label thing, and that's on the EPA's website. And then if you want to go see what endangered species are in your area, that you have to go to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So we got a couple different um, entities where you can find these things out. So just to keep that in mind, it's more of a, the endangered species thing is more of with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So that's what you kind of would want to want to Google there is um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife to kind of get the map. And then it shows you can search by state, you can search by pretty much anything you want to search by to find what species, and they give birds, plants. I mean, anything that's endangered, in your area. I looked up California's. It was like... Oh, I'm sure that's going to be like a million things. Yeah, I was like... I don't remember. 800 or so. It was just nuts. Um, Wisconsin only has 25, which is nice. Um, good both ways, right? Then it's better for the ecology, but also better for the people dealing with it. You also bring up a good point, too, Bill, is we have multiple governmental agencies involved. Right. So you got EPA, and then you've got U.S. Fisheries and Wildlife... And then you also actually have NOAA for like the fisheries stuff too. So there's, and that's more along the coasts, the way it sounded. So kind of like a multi, you know, you're going to have different links. I think for farmers, the biggest one to worry about is the bulletins live too from EPA. But if you want to learn more about those species, then you're going to go right. to these yeah. other. The why of, right. why am I restricted is, is right. delving into other agencies and. Yeah, so it's going to be fairly confusing at first. Uh, Especially be, since, like, the Endangered Species Act was in 1973. Like, this isn't new. The act itself is not. Like, this just right, happened two years ago. Like, this has been around. Like, EPA's having lawsuits against them, like, to get, like, to actually, you know, have jurisdiction over this act to actually put teeth into it. So that's kind of why we're hearing about it now. Yeah, well, and and species are being added and listed and delisted. I think are the terms they use all the time. So there, you may have something that's considered an issue now, but will 
potentially if it gets better go away or other things that will get added later so it's not a it's not a cut and dry thing where you can just say well uh you know when we to get back to the dicamba example like if you it's not just a temperature inversion thing it's not a a wind thing it in this case it's a habitat and a population thing for these different species so it's it's going to change not necessarily regularly but a lot um, and, over time and in the rule if you look at the act itself like the penalties aren't nothing to sneeze at like if they decide to actually f- enforce this at some point they probably will i mean a a civil penalty is 25 grand and a criminal penalty could be imprisonment and, and 50 grand so like this isn't small potatoes either so something we need to keep in mind and and watch out for as as time goes on yeah, no, it's they'll they'll be throwing uh, violations at you right and left if if you ignore it. So it's something we're all gonna have to pay attention to. Um, the good news though is they did talk about like okay, so you have you know why are we bringing up Rusty Patch Bumblebee because probably no one ever heard of that before we just talked about it. But um, basically, that's the big one in our area, and we deal with insecticides all the time. Yeah, you know, so that's obviously could be an issue. Um, but basically, EPA is giving us the opportunity to do mitigation factors to kind of negate any bad effects that would happen to the habitat of the insect or plant or animal. And they kind of do a point system on that. So that's... And this is the part that's not fully fleshed out yet. They're new. still working on drafting this particular system. And, the, and all these are drafted for public comment. Right. So that's another part is sort of the end call to action here is be on the watch for there's going to be this runoff mitigations or just different mitigations that they're going to need, you know, farmer input for more mitigations, uh, maybe input on like what the points should be, but especially the more mitigations, they definitely take them in. Like, like Bill said, it's going to be, they're not saying you cannot use this herbicide, this pesticide, you know, insecticide, they're going to say if you follow these points and mitigations, you can use it. So that also is a very good system, I feel, that that both things win. You know, the farmers can still use the technology and, you know, and also the species hopefully is able to propagate and get off the endangered species list. The cool part is these mitigation factors are kind of stuff we're doing already. Like, yeah. And they're asking us, EPA was asking us at our meeting we were at, like, come up with more. Like, if there's others that will work, like, we're here to listen and add to the to the document. So, like, crop rotation, grass waterways, cover crops, no-till, like, some of that stuff farmers are doing already. So it's not like, it's not like we got to change a ton of practices to meet these standards. Right. It's it's totally things that are out there and have been done for a while that you can... It's not like we have to recreate the wheel on how to construct these mitigation practices. This list that they have currently is, is all things that, like you said, Bill, farmers are either doing now or um, can be doing and can, be, can find help to do, uh, whether it's from their agronomists or county agencies, NRCS... Um, funding for a lot of these different things. So there are ways of of mitigating it <clears throat> that 
you know, obviously if you're not doing it already, it's it's more work that you'll have to do, but in the long run, hopefully it'll mean being able to still use the technology you want to use on your farm. And those systems are, like we said, in a draft stage, so nothing's set in stone as far as how many of these different mitigation practices you have to do. Um, they're talking about a point system where for each particular herbicide, pesticide, whatever it is, you would need to get to a certain amount of points and each mitigation practice level point value. And so as long as you your point value adds up to that amount of points, whatever's needed, which I can't even really give a good example because there's not anything specific out there yet. Um, and it's not additive. So it doesn't mean like, oh, if I'm going to spray, dicant, let's say, dicamba, I'm going to spray lambda and dicamba is 10 points and lambda is 6 points, I need 16 points. No, you, if you have the 10 points, 10. you're covered on both of those practices because it's it's not like you have to keep adding the points up. It's whatever the max points are for a particular practice. So yeah, it's clear as mud probably. Well, this is a spot too where, you know, let's get into like the practicality of it is say you have a co-op sprayer, a custom sprayer, they're going to need the farmer's help in this system and in this documentation process to make sure that, you know, everything's done right. It's not going to be one where, well, I got a custom sprayer guy, he'll figure it out. I'm I'm sure they can kind of figure it out, but you're still going to want the farmer's input on some of these practices, some of what you're doing. And there might be, from our standpoint too, there's going to be times where, we may recommend a different herbicide or or insecticide just because we know okay we got enough points for it and it's it's less on the scale or something like that or or make us think of okay is there something that we can substitute for a dicamba for a lambda like Matt said of 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 doing that so it is going to take down the road a little bit of um, being able to think it through plan better and then be able to kind of pivot away from different strategies. Yeah. And all this is over the rusty patch bumblebee, which most of you probably have no idea like what the difference is like, Oh, you mean a bumblebee? Well, no, it's not just any bumblebee there. It looks like a bumblebee. Well, it looks like a bumblebee and the females are the same except for it's all blackhead and the males and the workers have a rusty patch, like a little orange stripe on their back and that's where it gets its name so it's if you see a bumblebee it's not necessarily a rusty patch bumblebee um but it could be and they're not unless you're going to catch it and it's inspect it you may you know in a passing glance you're not going to be able to tell the difference uh potentially so they're they live underground um there can be more than a thousand worker bees in an, in a colony they colonize uh the workers are protectors of the colony. They look for nectar. You know, pretty typical bee activity. Um, and, yeah, all rusty patch bumblebees have entirely black heads. And the males and females, or, uh, males and workers have the rusty patch. And so when you look it up, yeah, you'll see the like the little orange bit on their back. And that's that's the biggest defining characteristic and they're not going to have you go look for these, right, right Matt? Like you're, but, but, uh, 
But I mean, if you ever seen one, then you. I guess from my standpoint, and maybe maybe it's just me, but I'd want to know what the heck I'm right. supposedly protecting, Prote- and, right? And know how to find it. And in the map is very interesting because some of the first maps we saw seemed like there was huge areas that were on the map, and it's hard to find the right. Like the one map that I'm looking at right now is from the kind of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Kind of they have a page on Rusty Patch Bumby, and way at the bottom, they got an interactive map or a map. And it, the one area that probably the biggest agriculture area, that, so there's a lot of city areas that pop up. So, right in downtown, not downtown Green Bay, but in Green Bay, you know, kind of up the shore where UWGB would be that area. But if you go on like E and E, right where those two meet, so if you think of where the there's a one stop there. You know, that whole area, there's a big, probably a one-mile radius, more than that, a couple-mile radius around that where there's a big patch. So so it's going to be tricky, too, in that you might have, you know, 80% of your fields aren't affected and don't have any, you know, listed endangered species on them, but you're going to have one or two fields that do. So also some unique areas like Berlin, Wisconsin, right to the east of Berlin, a whole part of, like, a lot of Ripon, Wisconsin is in. And then east of Fond du Lac, like kind of in the egg area off of 23. So you're going to have, like, it's just areas you wouldn't, like, I got no reason to know why. That That's going to be also the tricky part. It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, there's, you know, that's by the Horicon Marsh or the Burma Swamp. Like, this makes sense. It's not quite like that. It's right. it's other areas than what you'd expect. They can so. be in a number of different places, yeah. it's Again, why it's not going to be a simple process in... Checking that bulletins live too is really probably going to be your best bet for knowing whether or not your area is affected. And yeah, you're you're going to have to check on a field by field basis probably for most of these things because it it may not affect. Luckily, the way bulletins live too is you can set up like a click an area yep. and it'll sort of highlight. So as long as your whole area is kind of highlighted, you know what you got. You know you you everything was encompassed by that. So. All right, so nice, probably clear as mud, but like we said, it's not done yet. There's still more work being done on this, um, so it's a good thing to pay attention to when they're looking for comments. So they had a, a comment period earlier, uh, well, in the later part of last year. There'll probably be future comment periods to pay attention to, and you know, if if you think you're going to be affected, you to check out Bulletins Live 2 or um, the Fish and Wildlife Service maps of where the Rusty Patch Bumblebee is and you see your, an area of your farm is in there, look for those comment periods and, and get out there and express yourself because it's going to impact you in particular. So now we'll move into our spotlight for today. So Precision Planting is rolling out a new planter and software, the Cornerstone System. It's their fully custom factory-built planting system. It comes fully built with everything but the planter bar and is integrated with Precision Planting's technology. The company also announced the Panorama from Precision Planting, which now has two application programming interfaces connections and is available for purchase. It's additionally a larger 2020 monitor was announced and some updates on the Radical Agronomic platform. So Cornerstone 
is the new planter solution to enhance infield use, offers simple adjustments for changing planting conditions. The system is also offering increased durability and serviceability, according to the company. Compatible with all standard 7x7 planter bars, the Cornerstone is fully integrated with technology and will allow allow farmers to customize their planter with factory-built systems that ship with all the components, both mechanical and electronic, already installed. So instead of having to figure out how to put these add-ons onto your existing system, uh, as long as you've got the bar, you can install this whole new system and it'll come as not essentially one piece, but come together and already integrated. So they're beta testing the system now and hoping to get some successful field trials in the spring. They anticipate it being commercially available to dealers and farmers in 2025. It's wild to think precision plant. I mean, we had to know that was sort of the end game in a way of like a company that started by trying to increase singulation, you know, making aftermarket parts for a John Deere planter and, and other planters. And, you know, back in, I think they were founded in sort of in the mid nineties. And if you remember, it was Greg Sauter mm-hmm. that founded it, kind of an Illinois farmer. And, you know, then in kind of the around 2010 went through acquisitions and sort of different stuff, but it's yeah. Wild to think of, that basically almost 25 to 30 years later that they're kind of creating their own own setup. So you wonder if any other, if there'll be an aftermarket kind of surprised thing that comes for these planners. Kind of surprised it took this long. Right. 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 You think they would have gotten into it sooner. Right. But. But I mean, it, I mean, for them, it, it probably is just simpler to put it all together and give it to you in a package rather than having to figure out the best way to keep up with the changing planters of other brands. So you wonder if, cause Greg Sauter now owns yield 360. Yield, yep. So if he will make an aftermarket part for this for planter, yes, that'd, be, that'd just be full circle. Then. then it yep. would be. Yeah. The two companies that he, <laughs> he started working right. together again. This is like back. Yeah. All right. Now we'll move into our egg history minute. So as we mentioned earlier, the Endangered Species Act of 1973 is the primary law for the United States for protecting and conserving imperiled species. Designed to protect critically imperiled species from extinction as a consequence of economic growth and development, untempered by adequate concern and conservation. There's a mouthful for you. The ESA was signed into law by President Richard Nixon on December 28, 1973. Supreme Court of the United States described it as the most comprehensive legislation for the preservation of endangered species enacted by any nation. The purpose of the ESA are twofold, to prevent extinction and to recover species to the point where the law's protections are not needed. It therefore protects species and ecosystems upon which they depend throughout different mechanisms. So essentially it's trying to put itself out of work. They want to restore species that are endangered to the point where they no longer need any legal protections. ESA and its predecessors have been in place uh, since 1966, so there were some earlier versions that weren't necessarily the Endangered Species Act, but did similar things. Since enactment, these 
have led to the listing of over 2,400 species as threatened or endangered. As of October 2020, 2,363 species were listed, the majority of which, 71%, were listed in the United States. The remaining 29% were foreign species. Of all listed species, as of October 2020, 79% were endangered and 21% were threatened. As of October of that year, 91 species have been delisted under the ESA since it was enacted in 1973, which is approximately 3.7% of the total number of species ever listed under the Act. So it has been uh, shown that some species do get off the list eventually. Um, there are, you know, obviously arguments to be made for either side and species that do get argued over for a number of reasons. Um, I think we can all think of a couple that we've dealt with over over the years, but in the end, it's the law of the land, so we have to follow it. Great. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to our listeners out there. Please subscribe to the podcast and tell a farmer friend. That's all we ask is you tell a farmer friend about the podcast. And if he asks, well, how do I find it? It's pretty easy. You just search Tilt Talk Radio and Apple Podcasts. Or on your Android phone, there's other apps. There's Podcast Addict. Or I've been talking about Google Podcasts. However, Google is going to be sunsetting that software. So you're going to have to find a different one. So like I said, we like podcast addict there's also Podbean or player fm or there's a whole bunch of other places to find them you can also listen on your computer or smartphone browser go to tiltag.com slash podcast we're also available on amazon music so you can use that on your android phone or you can follow and and you can follow us on facebook and x at tilt talk radio thanks todd i, I do like the term sunsetting Yes, it very much softens the blow compared to taking out back and <laughs> right. and burying and because we're not using it anymore. But well, yeah. and what they recommend, which I've tried, is like there's a new there must be U, YouTube, uh, like a YouTube app basically, but it's YouTube Music I think is what it's called. Okay, but there's a YouTube version, and so far so it that's is, what they're shifting to. Correct, they're saying like, oh, this is way better. Go to this one, and so far what I've used of it, it it was not better. So <laughs> it, it was what? yeah. The next, the next thing isn't better. Aren't yes, we told you, that all the time. Tom? YouTube Music. That's what the <laughs> the the app they're recommending. Interesting. So now we're now we've got Amazon Music, YouTube Music, yes. Apple Podcasts. It's all. I think Amazon Music's in this this thing to just take my money. Oh, I hate that. Like, do your kids randomly send All you up time. for... Yes. yes. Every time <laughs> they the, look at my credit card, I'm like, free, what is this yeah. $10 here for? Yeah. Oh, somebody decided to say yes to Alexa's question. Right. No, Alexa, I do not want an Amazon Music. And then you say no, and she asks you another question, and you have to say no again. Like, sorry, rant. Yeah, getting out of things is always harder than getting, getting in. Getting in, yeah. There's no, well, like, are you sure? Well, it's always like you're just signing up for free trials, so right. it's... That you have to cancel right. or you will get charged. <laughs> right. right. All right. Now sorry, move sorry, sorry, sorry. Move on. <laughs> we'll move into our cool beans. That's corny and some current events. So cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. Our cool beans this week, John Deere and SpaceX have announced a Starlink deal. So now you can mount a Starlink on your John Deere tractor. I, I know I've seen this on Twitter. 
And if you guys have seen that, like no, I haven't. The a combine with like a Starlink dish on the cab, and then uh, a lot of comments about, oh yeah, now you can stream all your uh, Netflix and everything else while you're combining. But uh, so Deere and a company have announced an agreement with SpaceX to provide Starlink uh, network communications, SATCOM service to farmers. Using the Starlink network, network, this solution will allow farmers to uh, that are facing rural connectivity challenges to fully leverage precision ag technologies. The value of connectivity to farmers is broader than any single task or action. Connectivity unlocks vast opportunities that were previously limited or unavailable, according to Aaron Wetzel, VP of Production and Precision Ag Systems. The SATCOM solution will connect both new and existing machines through satellite internet service and ruggedized satellite terminals. This will enable autonomy, real-time data sharing, remote diagnostics, enhanced self-repair solutions, and machine-to-machine communication, all of which will help farmers work more efficiently while minimizing downtime, according to John Deere. So, yes, you will be able to... I, I don't know if it'll look exactly like a Starlink dish, or if it'll be something different, but um, yeah, it'll be interesting because you know we think of John Deere and the globes that you see on top of the tractors, and now it might look a little different with this interaction. Are they going to paint a Starlink dish yellow? That'd be cool. Make it they have to, don't they? <laughs> like. Now you're going to have cats living on top of your uh, yeah your tractor, or do I have a deer logo on the on the face of it? Wonder if it'll be self warming since you're not going to be. In the snow with your tractor, because that's one thing. Uh, Don't say that, Matt. You that, could be that Starlink is uh, is known for is the, uh, the the satellite dish that self warms to melt the snow off, so it keeps working. And then there's the joke online about cats <laughs> taking over Starlink dishes because it's, it's warm. So. Well, if cats get on our Starlink dish, we'll have a good picture. It would be long. impressive. Yeah, they'd have to get up on the roof and jump over there. So. The one on Starlink's website just looks like it's just like a flat panel they got laid right behind the the GPS. Yeah. It's still kind of the same-ish size. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. All right. Our That's Corny this week. The truth behind Wisconsin losing 455 dairy farms. So, it's unfortunately not a news story that... Seems like every year we lose a few more dairy farms in the state. And so if you ask any farmer how they feel about today's markets, they will say that economics just aren't adding up. And in particular, simply put, $15 milk, not really cutting it. So we've had glimpses of you know $20 milk or just over $20 milk in the past few years um, after we got out of that, I think, five-year cycle of, of low milk. Um, and, but we're down up and down quite a bit and down again, uh, it seems. So this is true in any state, but certainly being highlighted here in the state of Wisconsin. So according to DATCAP, they reported last year that we experienced a decline of 455 farms. Put that in perspective, in 2005, Wisconsin had 15,100 licensed herds with an average herd size of 82 cows. Decade later, so 2015, had 9,900 herds with an average size of 129 cows. And as of 2022, the state of Wisconsin had 6,350 dairy farms with an average herd size of 200 cows. Total number of cows has held steady over the past decade at around 1.2 million cows. 
So Chad Vincent, the CEO of Dairy Farmers of Wisconsin, shared that they work closely with DATCAP and in March 2020 sent out a survey asking how long producers are planning to stay in business and if they had a succession plan in place. And at that time, 17% of all dairy farms in the state said within five years they would not be milking. So he added that none of the numbers he sees on a monthly basis are a surprise. In that same survey, they also uh, was indicated that 22% of all dairies under 100 head had plans to exit within the next five years. So it's sad to see you and we love the farmers we work with and want to see them succeed and, and be successful. But unfortunately there are economic challenges that arise for a lot of these farms. And, um, this trend is unfortunately looking like it will continue. So now we'll do our field good Friday. And we had two options here. Are we going with the uh, the as written here? It's as we, written. We gonna, yeah. Okay. All right. No audible today. Sorry. No. So this week we're going to talk 314 bushel corn, only using seven inches of rain. So that may seem crazy to you. It seemed crazy to the farmer that experienced it over in Minnesota. David Hublin grew a contest winning corn yield. 314.93 bushels in 2023 on only seven inches of rain. Now, you might be asking, well, is he irrigated? No, he was in the uh, non-irrigated category for the 2023 National Corn Growers Association Yield Contest in Minnesota. He farms in the southeast corner of the state with his wife, Jennifer. Uh, he feels that the trait technology paid off. He grew DeKalb 5982 rib that was planted on 40-acre field near the couple's home farm in Lewiston in Winona County on May 1st and was harvested October 11th. On the day before the harvest, the U.S. Drought Monitor showed 75% of the state's corn crop, including Hubens, was enduring moderate to extreme drought, so D1 to D2. Uh, he's convinced that high-yielding hybrids with new traits are responsible for his success. Uh, he's blessed to be surrounded by knowledge, caring individuals to help him make qualified decisions to better his bottom line. He also credits his success to careful planting and harvesting practices, timely fertilizer and fungicide applications, areas nutrient-rich uh, Port Byron and Mount Carroll soils, moderate temperatures that climbed above 90 degrees only two times during the summer, and the precious inches of timely rainfall. So he had 1.1 inches in May, 1.5 in June, 3.9 in July, and just a half inch in August for a grand total of his seven inches across the season. But I would that 3.9 in July, yeah. Yeah. it was like your moneymaker. Right. Yep. Yep. And having some in August, I think, definitely helped right. finish out. Right. You're right. But and that too, think of that if one of those, which a half though isn't much, but it's no, something. But it's something. Yeah. And yeah, depending when, well, too, temperature wise, if you only had two days over 90. That, right. that helps. True, you're not burning off so wild, wildfire smoke. Maybe, yeah, could be. So uh, good for him, and yeah, great that he could succeed this year. And like we said earlier in the podcast, we were surprised by a lot of yields this year, a lot of uh, exceeded expectations, not everywhere, but um, for a lot of folks this year. So got to count our blessings and hope next year is a better year. So. 
That'll do it for this week. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us, Matt. So this week we talked about the Endangered Species Act and how the rusty patch bumblebee may affect your herbicide and pesticide use in the future. Got to watch that Bulletin's Live 2 for updated label amendments. In our spotlight, we looked at the cornerstone planting system from Precision Planting. Egg History Minute, we talked the history of the Endangered Species Act. Cool Beans this week was John Deere and SpaceX are teaming up to provide Starlink SATCOM services to farmers in rural areas. That's corny, was Wisconsin continuing to lose dairy farms. And our Field Good Friday was being able to make 314 bushel corn on only 7 inches of rain. So thanks for listening, and as always, happy farming.